So the Māori worldview is actually what's so critical to science today in New Zealand because it provides another doorway to look at the same data and find a different way to observe it that might give us insights or new ways of um, engaging. Kia ora, I'm Troy, here as CEO and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Kia ora, I'm Kim, GM of Communications here at Hira. Today, we're carrying on our conversation around mātauranga Māori and science. This time, talking with Paura Tapihana, aka Poor Tapsil. Paura is a professor and researcher at Takarangi Research, where they're focused on social science with an aim to support local indigenous communities and their re-engagement with ancestral resources to improve Māori wellbeing nationwide. Well, kia ora Paura, welcome to Stirring the Pot. First off, ko waikwe no hiakwe, who are you and where are you from? Then uh, I Kim. Um, oh no, my makatuki tongarero. Uh, I'm a Aroa uh, descendant with um, some connections back across the Mamaku with our Ngati Raukawa side of Mangatautari. And um, for all intents and purposes, I'm a refugee blowing down here in Otiputi. So I, um, I remain um, just the right distance away from my tribe to be able to do things I want to do and not be um, distracted by all the no requirements from day to day. But that no doubt will change in the future. But for now, uh, yeah, down here at Putti, close in with um, a lot of our academic community, but close connections as well with the University of Melbourne and Australian National University where I also hold um, honorary positions. Oh, I love that. <laughs> no my welcome. <laughs> um, I'm really curious to start off, I guess, with just diving a little bit into your mahi. Uh, you, you're working at Takarangi Research. What does that involve? Uh, a lot of juggling. <laughs> um, and they are, and uh, Newton's third law does struggle to keep up. Um, I think all my reactions uh, happen before the actions actually occur. Uh, so at the moment, uh, I have research projects on both sides of the Tasman. I've been locked back here in New Zealand since March last year. So um, I've been working remotely into Australia, uh, particularly been doing a lot of work in the past um, with the Aboriginal First Nations, um, the Indigenous peoples over there around the repatriation of their ancestral remains. So um, it's a bit of a far cry from science, but... A lot of ways, though, it's the archaeological background, social science background that I apply into that space and assist with their um, reconnecting their old people that have been captured by museums or been captured by um, university institutions, medical institutions. Um, the biggest struggle we have is returning them, not necessarily returning them home, but making sure we're returning home, A, the right ancestors, and B, the medical records that actually are mostly associated with them. And on this side of the Tasman, 
as uh, some similar issues, um, a little bit further advanced, I'd suggest. Um, and the other um, research on tied up National Science Challenge, uh, kind of in and out of the Science for Technology and Innovation program, but more involved in our lands and water and uh, working alongside Cawthron um, on our part-to-plate project, which is about getting food that's grown traditionally and comes from cultivars that are pre-contact. How do we grow them, scale them up into a commercial um, harvest that we can then export to our descendants living in the cities so that they can actually eat the kai of their ancestors literally and support their well-being. And the other um, project program, Takarangi, we're involved in is the um, what we call Project Kainga, and it's how can we support Kainga to respond to climate change using science and scientists and specialists and experts um, that can also support their uh, development of well-being beyond the current constraints colonisation has placed on them. So that kind of more or less sums up. Oh, there's one other one. We're working with... Um, we're working with school age, teenagers, early adults, and asking a really simple question, you know, do you know your ancestral marae? Are they still important to you? And um, what does that mean to your identity moving forward? Yes, well, so not very much then in terms of your work. In fact, too much. It's amazing you're able to cope with it all. And it's really sounding like such beautiful mahi to help the Indigenous peoples, both in Australia and here in Aotearoa. So I really commend you on that line of work. Uh, and, I, and I wondered in terms of that, I know that part of that mahi really relies on the idea of the interface between science and mātauranga Māori. How do you think that mātauranga Māori is evolving for that work? Oh, that's... A really interesting question, and it's it's something I've been thinking about in our team quite a bit. One of the um, our observations is that conceptually, I think there's a general attitude towards Matauranga Māori as being static um, and kind of a how our ancestors might have done this or done that and and the engagement of our um, whakapapa within the context of sort of base elements like it might be the environment or it might be the ocean or um, food harvesting. But um, what I've noted in our projects in particular and working with um, knowledge elders is that they haven't stopped evolving that mātauranga and that looks so different probably from what our our tūpuna would have recognised as being mātauranga even, you know, 200 years ago, even 100 years ago. And it's that evolution and that ability to synthesise and disrupt and find new ways of engaging in whatever they're investigating. And that reminds me of when I was young, when one of our... My elders, Tōmairangi, um, chastised uh, us young fellas when um, Auntie Tuku died and we came up with this great idea, we're going to paddle her 
in, the, in our wakatoa, Tauroa, across the lake to bury her out on Makoya. But the bury on Makoya wasn't the problem, it was getting her there. And, and old Tor Mairangi turned round to us and just shook his head. And he said, do you think if our tūpuna had an outboard motor, they wouldn't have used it? <laughs> and he goes, and furthermore, can you imagine if that old battle axe fell in the water, we wouldn't be able to fish in that lake for 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of like, put him in the, put him in the, uh, in the boat and we'll just get her, get her across. <laughs> so, so I think the lesson there is that um, science wasn't recognised by that word so much as the application of the philosophy that sits behind science, whether it's Western, Indigenous, um, it's neither here or there. It's it's a how you construct your observations to form the data that can then assist you in you reading that data to make the appropriate decisions moving forward and starting to work out what the constants are and what the variables are. And at the moment, when we deal with climate change, we're actually dealing with some rapidly and accelerating variables that we are not able to keep up with, especially if we bring it back into a social context. So at the moment, those who have been impacted the hardest are Indigenous communities because they're the most impoverished and don't have the skills or the tools to be able to counter that. So a lot of the um, a lot of the communities I am engaging with and our team are engaging with are low-lying just above sea level, um, communities, gardens, poor sanitation, sewage systems that are basically long drops that are now probably king tides come in, the flooding that occurs, the health issues, the lack of food that they have, um, good food they have, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so what we're looking at here when we go back to the concept of mātauranga is that on one hand, there's those of us who are going through university and, and are integrating two worlds of science. I hate to use the word Western, but yeah. And then there's another part of our community which is growing bigger and bigger and bigger that has no access to mātauranga like they should have. And what we're really talking about is access to those who can interpret that knowledge, such as myself and others. So our takarangi is actually about bridging back into the communities and giving them the skills and the capability again to use mātauranga that's relevant to 21st century issues today for them not just to survive but regather their well-being. Notwithstanding, they've got a landscape that's pretty much uh, being lost through colonisation. So um, that's probably a, a quick answer to a very hard question. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's yeah, a hard so that's question. I think. I think, and one and thing that I, one point that you did bring up that actually made me think a little bit more was how you said that this isn't just about what our tūpuna did way back when, because it is evolving mātauranga Māori, and I think that that is something perhaps that today's scientists, not all of them, but some of them have forgotten, you know, they just assume we're basing all of our mātauranga on, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, or whatever. But actually, it's it's not. 
we like everyone else have evolved in our thinking too so yes that is the base but we've continued that journey just like anyone else and perhaps that's the part that's missing in the understanding when we try and bridge western hmm. science with mātauranga māori is that they're assuming that our knowledge is old and has is remains in its old roots when in actual fact we've got very ingenious uh innovative Māori who've continued that journey from our tūpuna to today such as yourself yeah well we're using the outboard motor if it's a Hilton <laughs> <team now>. um <laughs> and, and this is critical with our ancestors when they going way back when, when they navigated and explored the Pacific, they were using amazing science. And that amazing science and that ability to innovate is still part of our culture. Um, our young people, um, for better or worse, they'll, they'll find whatever ways they can to make something work, especially if they're impoverished. And if they're really keen on creating the best bong or the best pee pipe or whatever that they find a way to do it <laughs> but um more seriously the 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 lessons of our tupuna and there's another one another crow asking Paula, what's your definition of tradition and i said i was trying to bumble around find an answer he goes I'll save you the work. Tradition is something waiting to be broken. <laughs> and, and once it's tradition, literally, it means it's not fit for purpose anymore. But then the next part of the lesson was, but you can't lose sight of the importance of the whakapapa of knowledge than the whakapapa of how you behave, your belief systems, and the whakapapa that gives you the right to exercise those responsibilities, your ancestors. And so the combination of those three essential strands of identity, where knowledge is a central part of that, is part of us moving forward. And if our knowledge doesn't continue to grow, we will literally become a tradition <laughs> that needs to be broken. We need to upskill. We need to stay ahead. We need to constantly engage the environment as it changes around us, whatever that environment is, whether it's within a petri dish or whether it's around COVID or um, it involves manufacturing, etc. So these are these um so the Māori worldview is actually what's so critical to science today in New Zealand, because it provides another doorway to look at the same data and find a different way to observe it that might give us insights or new ways of um, engaging whatever it is that field. So I mean we call ourselves Takarangi deliberately because what we're reflecting on is the double spiral of creation, which has um, been part of the Pacific for thousands of years, part of our navigation. And the, that double spiral of innovation is about the well, it's, it's about the balance of, of the forces within the universe. And um, and you have the balance between Rangi and Papa, Tao Maru and, and Te Kore, um, balance between the Rangatira who um, sorry, between the Komato, who are very much uh, heritage-minded and traditional and protecting past lessons and making sure we don't lose sight of those lessons or the principles sitting behind them, versus the Portiki, who are adventurous and 
dam the torpedoes or jump across the river and see what's going on on the other side and get into all sorts of trouble. But they're explorative. So the balance between heritage and exploration is the rangatira and the tohunga that maintain that dynamic takarangi type space. And within all that, that's where Modi sits. It's that balance of energy in the universe. And how is that Modi either um, being sustained or shifting its state to something that won't sustain human condition in the future? But, I mean, life will continue on this planet. The Modi, the energy forces and the bouncing, the equilibrium will continue. But where it shifts, the the dynamics of that will ultimately determine whether we're part of the future of this planet or not. And at the moment, yeah, we're really fighting for our right by exercising our responsibilities through our whakapapa to continue to be part of Papa Tunuta's future um, being. So um, that's, that's the big, uh, that's the challenge. Wow, that is so deep and insightful. <laughs> I, really, I really love looking at it through that frame uh because yeah i mean it just even makes me think about my own life and uh you know uh, i was speaking to mahonrai who's uh the gm of uh research and enterprise with puhoro and he mentioned something similar where he's telling stories about when he was younger and the learnings he was getting from his grandmother uh, in much the same as I, you know, we were taking those learnings and not really giving them the time of day at that time. But now that we're on our own journey of innovation and learning, we're, we're thinking about that matauranga now and trying to put a new spin on it or a new light on it and what that means in today's world. And you're right, I think that Māori uh, a very innovative and a trying new ways. I only have to look as close as my brother, who I remember when we were younger and mum would pay us like $20 to do, uh, to mow the lawns. Now he would spend that whole entire time trying to think of ways to do that job quicker and easier than actually just getting on and doing the job. But it's the same thought process, isn't it? That, uh, you know, we're constantly trying to do better, to learn more, to implement new things to try and do things in a more um, streamlined and productive way. So I guess it's just the way of our people and the way we roll. So it's something to be very proud of. And I guess thinking about Mātauranga Māori, what would you say is its distinct frame of reference? Oh, for me, first and foremost, and above everything else, whakapapa. It's a fantastic... Um, philosophical approach to the universe right down to everything we do and it's something that is the gift that our tupuna passed to us if you understand the whakapapa and where you fit and where everything else fits and then it's relational and then you can see the action reactions and the engagements and, and what works what doesn't work everything's whakapapa it's just for me that's the greatest gift i've got from my elders is seeing it through the eyes of whakapapa as a philosophy not just the genealogy, so everything has a has a whakapapa to exist here today. And and where a whakapapa no longer exists, where you're looking at an unsuccessful experiment, um, and uh, whether it's through a breeding program where, or, or um, the bringing together two knowledge systems to find a new innovative way to um, 
to look at a, a battery cell. So these are, yeah, it, nothing comes out of nothing. Uh, to get a bit quantum on us. But um, the, yeah, there's only two elements in our whole universe, space and energy, and then how those combine and engage and then energy, you know, and it becomes gravitational forces, light, electromagnetic, these, and then and then the mass that represents our existence, you know, after four billion years of the redevelopment of our, of our solar system into the planets and what we've got, this is this will fuck it proper. Yeah. Um, so um, I enjoy uh, having done all the other philosophies that sit behind. Western empirical science, um, and look at how Descartes has, um, in a way, pushed Western science and the, the the perspective that we call enlightenment through from the 1700s onwards. It has um, distracted us those binary opposites and putting Cartesian lines on maps as, and measuring things in time has distracted us from looking at the relationships within a particular environment or an ecology and understanding the relationships will probably give us equally valid answers from a perspective of like a problem that can be totally used. Our science today, our measurements, the way we observe data, it's all valid. Nothing, in fact, Papa, it's not right or wrong. It's just different windows to look through things. Yeah, Cornwall, I, mean, I, I wonder about that powder because you, you mentioned earlier around Modi Modi being that life force, life energy. And I often feel like um, Modi or Modi Kite Modi, that connection between people is something that Māori people feel, feel very comfortable in that concept. But it's a little harder for people to understand if they aren't in the culture because it's quite, it's not tangible. You know, it's, almost sometimes can be a gut instinct, which doesn't really feel like it could be scientific as such. How, how do you reconcile that? You know, is it just, is Modi just the way we explain it, but it's actually something more than that? You know, is that perhaps the disconnect where we need to work on so that today's scientists understand Māori? Well, it's a bit like, if you asked um, most people on the street today um, their understanding of um, electromagnetic forces between planets, they just look at you and go, but yet that's part of our science base. That's, that's, and so you go to the right person to ask the right question to get the right answer. Um, and it's this, what we've lost today is the interpretation of Modi across to our people who don't understand it. And to be honest, 99.9% .9 of our people today, Māori, they have an intuitive understanding, I guess, of Māori in terms of whether it's something that keeps the electricity in our body going. Sorry, best way to describe it. But if we wanted to really understand it, it's the tohunga, tohunga ahurewa, that were um, the knowledge keepers and those who knew how to negotiate and manipulate Māori within any context to either bring about well-being or to take away well-being. They, it's like probably not unlike some of the other old 
of philosophical sciences based on qi or based on energy systems that sit behind acupuncture or um, the flows of energy that you know, uh, dismisses alternate worldviews. And Modi is, probably comes from a similar base that these old world um, traditional knowledge systems also um, still practice and belong to. So when I've just finished um, supervising one of my PhD students and she's investigating the how Modi fits within museology um, within New Zealand's metropolitan museums as fascinating investigation she's done and she's a, she's uh, interviewed Maori that work in museums and Maori outside museums and she's looked at all the literature mm. around Maori going right back to the various writings on that which came of course from Pākehā ethnographers and religious um, people through to today and and her findings is also that very much that Maori is so little understood and today we have lost sight of the deeper meanings of it. But it doesn't mean it's not still evolving and we're not getting a deeper knowledge. And there's people in the practical world like Tipper Morgan who's applying the Modi meter. And you can use practical things to get a tangible sense of Modi. The smell of water that's coming out of a forest. People say, oh, you can smell the energy in it. Well, we might say, no, that's the Modi, that you know, it's life-giving forces are contained in that water, it's biologically alive, it's um, capable of feeding and developing the proteins and the carbohydrates necessary for our well-being when we eat the food further down the river. But as the water travels down towards the estuary, the water, the smell changes, the, the life around the river that it's feeding because of higher temperatures and because of the different pathogens that are entering the water or the nutrients, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's and that just the smell alone is a great indicator of Modi. And I always recall how people talked about the difference between Modi and Ho. The Ho was the breath, the smell of the land, the smell of the people, the essence. And Modi was the the engine at a I guess at a cellular level that uh, maintained us biologically, our existence on the planet. So yeah. I think I could go on with listening to you talk about it for ages too. I, I really connect in with that cordero. I, I truly believe in Modi. It's something that uh, I feel very comfortable with, but I do know that it's very difficult to convey that to someone else who doesn't quite understand it. So I think it was a great way to give it uh, a clearer understanding that others might totally get it more so I'm also wondering just in terms then of all that mātauranga Māori work that you do how does all the mahi that is delivered in your kaupapa how, how does that link into tatiriti oh if only <laughs> um, <laughs> the work we do is baseline article two of the treaty tatiriti to um, the English translation of the Māori version of our treaty. And we very much engage marae communities as opposed to iwi organisations. 
and we differentiate between the two. Um, EU organisations are the, you could say, a tree, uh, Article 1 kawanatanga um, convenient response to be able to engage in the kawanatanga world that we live today. Whereas within Article 2, you've got a the Crown literally promising to protect and uphold the rangatiratanga of the rangatira and the hapu and their unqualified exercise or sovereignty over the whenua. And when I say whenua, and I communities that work with whenua includes the waterways that sit on the whenua. It also includes the, the local catchment climates and the bush or whatever engaged. So it's a biosphere. That's the whenua. So to protect the whenua, the kainga, that's not just the people, but that's their engagement with the whenua. They're, they're growing their crops and um, and it's a, you know, like tangata whenua. And then taonga. And the taonga is probably the most critical part of that because the taonga are the resources that provide the building materials that sustain the people from one generation to the next. And the taonga we think of that are sitting in museums today are actually our science books. The mnemonically coded understandings of the knowledge, the mātauranga, that directly relates to every unique catchment throughout the country. So every taonga that sits in the museum once upon a time was what the tohunga used to be able to literally engage the modi of that catchment concerning that particular resource. They're um, intertwined. In colonisation, when you extracted the people from the whenua and then you started to extract the well-being of the land, turning it into farms, whatever, and chopping down the trees, and um, the taonga that sit in museums ended up there because they lost their context. They were no longer being able to be used. Our people were excluded from that landscape and, and a lot of these taonga used to sit with our dead and were protected by the dead until we needed to bring them out again to use in a new generation. Um, mm. but, and you still see a little bit of that practice occurring today, at least in our people or when I was young, when one of our kaumatua died, all the taonga would go down the hole with them because in the old world, when someone died and then you had a year later the hauhunga, um, the scraping of the bones, and then we put our people, uh, the koiwi, into the caves, we always put with them particular taonga. And the caves were ordered so that like, it's like, like a cattle on card of people going back generations. And the way we identified our people was through the taonga that sat with them. So when these caves were raided, it, they took not only the koiwi out that were sold or given to museums, but they took the taonga, mostly honamu, and then they were traded and put into auction houses. So a lot of the honamu we see around the world originated out of our burial caves, our anakoiwi. Um, and we lost that practice of our taonga going back in to secure, bring back out a taonga that then passed to someone who's a new knowledge keeper, the new um, kaitiaki, hungatiaki uh, of, of that knowledge and its engagement directly with the particular whenua and the well-being of the whole tribe, the whole kindred. So these are these are these are the dis disconnections that have occurred 
And so when you asked, you know, what does tertiality mean within our framework of our uh, research, uh, it's absolute baseline. It's, um, there was a, it's an unfulfilled promise that continues today and its impact on our people is massive. And um, as I suggest to students, don't pretend colonisation is finished and we're now in a post-colonisation world. I'd argue that colonisation today is even more severe than it's ever been because the effect it's having on our people um, is traumatic and it's cross-generational. So uh, this is part of what we're trying to address directly. Yes, I think colonisation becomes a, a word that people feel very uncomfortable to hear and have conversations around because no one likes to feel like they're a part of causing that radu for Māori. But the reality is, is it, it has come from that past. In fact, you know, you're talking about tohunga. Well, there's the Tohunga Suppression Act, which the very act was to stamp out what I guess you could liken to as our version of our scientists, you know, the people who held all that mātauranga and they were told, no, you, you can't, you can't practice, you can't bring your knowledge. It's not allowed, you know, legislated. In fact, it still stands today. And I don't think that many non-Māori and maybe even Māori might know about this. And so... You know, we wouldn't today dream of telling a scientist at a university it's legislated that you can't practice your knowledge and share your knowledge. That just would seem unheard of, but it's so comfortable that it sits as a as a piece of paper that restricts Māori from doing just that. So it is interesting um, to to hear that context because yes, in, in essence, colonization has been what's caused the disconnect. And probably from a social perspective, why a lot of Māori probably feel a little lost in today's world. Um, you know, of course, we live here. We, you know, we've adapted, we, we wear clothes, we drive cars. I'm not saying that, but it's more like we've lost our pathway, the whakapapa that you talk about. And, and it's hard to go back to it when there's been big breaks in understanding that mātauranga. Mm. I think the biggest impact of colonisation today is that since World War II, our depopulation of our kāinga, our uh, communities, a direct consequence of, us, of the whenua around us not being able to support A, a growing population, and B, that um, all of the fragmentation and fractionation of the lands through the Māori land court or confiscation of the road patu, just meant it couldn't support the people. So there was a push me pull you bright lights of the cities, jobs, security of education and work, as opposed to living at home, relative poverty, um, struggle, cut off from the rest of the world. And it's still the same when we go and do work up way up in the north, northern Hokianga. Um, you still got the kids up there, the tamari, they just can't wait to get the hell out of dodge and go to the city and work for my television. Yeah, or whatever it might be. Um, but then for, for, the, for these three, four generations now that have disconnected from the Marae communities, this more today than ever, their idea of belonging to their whakapapa is actually a beneficiary role with a post-settlement governance entity, an iwi organisation, not back to the Marae communities out of which their grandparents came or great-grandparents came. 
and if, and with the one of our projects, the Māori mapping of all our marae in the country, which has took us about four years and we've been going for about a decade now, um, that has, as we keep monitoring the 780 marae of the country, tribal marae, it's probably only about 500 now functioning to any level of um, usefulness. Most of them are collapsing. They can't afford the insurance. Some of them, like, close to the high tide marks now. And the old people that used to be there, their health care is so far away, they end up living with the mukhuls in town. Um, they'll go home to clean the urupa once in a while. Um, meanwhile, the buildings are collapsing into the ground, literally turning to the Fenua. And we're the last country on the planet that still has a marae culture. Marae culture used to be right across the whole of the Pacific, and now we're still practicing it, but only by our fingernails we're holding on. Mm. So there's, um, and that, all that knowledge systems that that represents, that's what we're at risk of losing um, in return for a, um, an iwi payout on a beneficiary role. And yeah, it's great. But again, Whakapapa says you can be both. You don't have to be either or. But there's been such a concerted effort by the Crown, I hope them fully responsible, to get Māori to go into these iwi settlements, become beneficiaries of them, and it's taken away all that responsibility off the Crown and it's just passed it on to our own people to now have to become the, the, uh, the administrators of those impoverished and we're not reaching them properly at all. And our PSGs aren't even equipped to do that. Um, and the Crown saying, oh, you've had your settlement, yeah, we'll leave you to do it. Meanwhile, we're going health for leather to try and build up our capital base to maybe one day be able to provide benefit, but at what cost? By the time we get there, you know, how many marae are still going to be functioning as marae? Still holding on to what whakapapa, what Modi what it means to engage with a portiki, a rangatira, tohu, kaumatu, in a very traditional, quote, customary sense, beyond tradition, something that actually is 21st century for purpose. So there you go. Thanks for joining our conversation with Paura today. If you'd like to connect more with him, you'll find his details in the show notes. Today's conversation is an important one to have and we're glad to be continuing on with this kōrero to help shine the light on Mātauranga Māori. We really hope our listeners tune in and consider the points being made and more importantly that they share these podcasts to give space for the discussion. As our CEO Troy Coyle raised, the social conversation seems to be focused on the question, is Mātauranga Māori science? but maybe the exploration should be more about how science is actually part of Mātauranga Māori. So I'd like to leave you with the words that were penned as an open response to the controversial article that has kicked off this podcast conversation from Professor Sean Hendy and a plethora of other signatories. Mātauranga is far more than just equivalent to or equal to Western science. It offers ways of viewing the world that are unique and complementary to other knowledge systems. Food for thought till we see you next time. So hit subscribe and if you like what you heard today, please like, review or share with any metalheads you know. Let's spread the word.
If you liked what you heard today, you may be interested to know more about our research to investigate the interface between Mātauranga Māori and Construction 4.0. As far as we're aware, it's the first time it's been investigated and we believe it'll lead to valuable insights and recommendations for future work. You might also be interested to join our Māori and Engineering Working Group so collectively we can raise the mana of Māori in our industry. You'll find details of both initiatives in the show notes.